0: iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store
1: There were nine of us who escaped Number one Was killed in Malaysia Number two was murdered in England. Number three was hunted down in Kenya. Before they come for the others, they'll come for me. Number 4
2: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Stu Von Ayrsdale of Movie Line, and tonight's guests, DJ Caruso and Alex Pettifer. How's everyone? Thanks for coming out on Friday night. Really appreciate it. It's wonderful New York weather. How are you two gentlemen doing? Doing well.
0: Good, okay, thank you. Okay, I guess we'll start out the way everyone tends to start out with these things. Can you tell us, what is I Am Number 4? What is I Am Number 4? I Am Number 4 is a science fiction action film, as you can tell, with a real strong character. Uh, I read a manuscript about, actually about nine, ten months ago. And from that manuscript, we worked on the screenplay, and it turned out turned out to have a movie, and less than a year later, here it is up on the screen.
2: I was going to say, this movie st- came together. I mean, you hear about adaptations of, of any books, but especially young adult novels are getting picked up a lot faster, developed a lot faster, but they're still held up. This one came together so quickly. At which point did you both
1: become involved? Uh, <laughs> I, I read the script and uh, fell in love with the, the character, John, and, and I, was, I was sent for an audition, and didn't do too well <laughs> and then and then went back and then yeah it was what, uh, what happened uh, uh what do you think happened <laughs> uh, i'm sorry uh but i uh, i went in and and i didn't think that i was right for the part uh so uh i very respectably um uh shook everyone's hand and, and said and said that uh, now he started to read I, right I, he's I, like I, okay uh, here we go and we started
0: and then he just stopped and he said no uh I'm not right for this. I'm nope. not right for this. I'm not going to ruin your movie
1: or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I just didn't, I didn't want to... I, I, love, I love DJ's uh, work before, and I just, yeah, I, I, uh, I admired to work, work with him. I just didn't want to screw up uh, what I thought was an amazing film. So. And it, might, it, might have,
0: it wasn't a ploy, but it could have been a ploy, because right away I knew when a guy looks like this and has that vulnerability that he'd make a great character, you know, that he'd, make, he'd, give, you this thing, he'd give you the reason to, to have doubts and, to, and, to, and the fear. And the fear, the fear that he had in the room was a fear I wanted him to bring to the character.
2: Uh, that's really interesting. I mean, and how did you become involved? Because I know there's some backstory there. Yeah,
0: well, they bought uh, DreamWorks. Steven Spielberg and, and uh, Stacey Snyder bought this uh, manuscript for Michael Bay to direct. And uh, Michael Bay was going to go off and do Transformers 3, so they said, would you, turn, would you be interested in turning this manuscript into a screenplay and see if you can get it going and get it out by next President's Day? Um, and I said, I'll sure give it a try, and I was looking to do a science fiction movie, um, A Father of Five, and uh, movies that I was younger, like Back to the Future, and Goonies are movies that are in the rotation at my house, and I thought, if I can make, like, a a science fiction movie in the spirit of those movies, with a little bit more action, that would be something I was looking to do, and this kind of fit that bill.
2: By the same token, it has some pretty, you know, important, successful, and popular uh, source material, you know, and so there's a following there. Do you both Think about the following it has, and the legacy this book has, and this whole series. uh, When you're approaching it, and how do you retain your creative independence, both of you?
0: Well, I I can go first, and you can leave. the, The freedom I had as a filmmaker was when, when you're developing a manuscript. Unlike the directors who have Harry Potter or Twilight's. They already the readers had expectations of what the movie should be because they had all read the book. This book didn't come out until we had about three or four days of shooting left. So I felt very free to make decisions that I wasn't sort of locked into. I didn't know what the readers liked or disliked, so it gave me freedom. And then I think uh, you can probably take it from.
1: Yeah, I I can speak only from a character perspective, but um, you know, uh, playing John, uh, obviously this there's certain things in the book that are noticed and certain things in the film that aren't. The fact is, is in the film uh, I'm not as aware uh, of uh, where I'm from and uh, the whole origins of my story and, and in the book I am, so, you know, uh, when I got the script, um, I kind of tried to stay away from the manuscript and, and the book because uh, the book didn't get released until one week, until uh, we finished the movie, so, um, yeah. That was kind of freeing as an actor.
2: But did you both kind of keep an eye on the reaction to the book as it came along and then think, oh, man, people are going to be just, or,
0: uh, you know. You know, we d- really, really, really didn't have time to. We knew it came out and sold really well in the young adult version in the New York Times bestseller list, so we heard that was doing well. But as, you know, when you're making a movie, it's just kind of the day-to-day grind. And actually, if you get too caught up in reading what they liked or didn't like, it's kind of interesting to know now to see because it's interesting. The, it's, for, it's kind of odd because the book and the movie are kind of working together. For the first time, usually, the book cements uh, something, but it seems like together they 're working, so people are real curious about what 's in and what 's out right now, which is kind of nice.
2: now, can you talk a little bit about assembling this cast and kind of how you put it together?
0: yeah well, I think uh, you know there's certain times in your, uh, in your career as a filmmaker where you have a lot of freedom. Disturbia was one of those for me where they basically said, "Find the best guy for the role and, and I felt the same way here, and I am number four they basically had okayed the movie and said, go make the movie, now go find the best people. So it wasn't like, go get Brad Pitt and we'll make your movie, or go get George Clooney and we'll make your movie. So it gives you a lot of freedom as a filmmaker to go out and really kind of search and, and casting all over the world, basically, in London, New York, Australia, um, and just find the right people for the role, and you kind of narrow it down. So it's, a, it's kind of a, it's a laborious and at times a real fun process. And then ultimately, uh, seeing Alex come in, once you anchor the movie off someone like Alex, it was trying to find the right girl to play Sarah who sort of is his love interest as the movie progresses, and we screen-tested about, we, I got it down to about six or seven girls, and Alex was gracious enough, we screen-tested for a long time, and then ultimately Diana uh, Agron came free from Glee, and so I screen-tested her, and it was fantastic, and Teresa Palmer was someone I'd been aware of for a while, and she came in and read and got the part in the room, just like that, So, and Timothy Oliphant, was a fan, I've been a fan of his, and just sort of assembling the cast with a lot of freedom as a filmmaker, it's great because usually the studio's looking over your shoulder having to approve things, but when you saw the cumulative group that we put together, everyone got really excited.
2: Alex, when did you meet everyone else, your other castmates, and I guess what were your discussions and how did you kind of build a rapport with them?
1: Uh, well, TJ has this uh, way that he... Um... He describes, who's the director that taught you this? Well, It was David Lean, I have this
0: fantasy. David Lean, has a, he loves to bring everyone together as a family before the movie starts with wardrobe fittings and dinners, and, and so I try to follow that to make sure all the cast members, by the time we, we get on the
1: boat and kind of go to location, we all have good relationships. So. Yeah, so uh, we just all met for dinner, and just, you know, as you do, you, you either hit it off with people or you don't, and we, we just happen to all love each other, and uh, we're really excited about the movie that we wanted to make.
2: You're playing. You know, the thing is,
1: we, as you know, we we all have been to high school. We all know that
2: you know you kind of sometimes you feel like an alien <laughs> in real life. You're playing an actual alien in high school. How did that kind of dynamic affect your role and and the character and kind of building it?
1: Uh, well, you said it. You know, um, I never wanted to uh, come and like start like putting out my hand and <laughs> stuff like that. So uh, I uh, I you know I saw John as you know obviously he's this alien, but it was more of um, the term as as being an outsider for for me. You know, um, he has this dark secret and he can't tell anyone and he has to keep his head down. And so, um, yeah, that was really the alien term for us.
2: One of the things, D.J., I've noticed about your films I think most people have seen, especially recently, is your rapport with actors. I mean, in, in action and in sci-fi and in thrillers, you, know, you, you always, some, well, not always, but sometimes you feel like the director's just kind of trying to you know, exert all the control and the actor's just there. No. But the rapport that you can sense with your actors uh, is, is, is very palpable. Can you talk about developing that?
0: Well, I always feel when you, when you're sort of, when you know you're, you're making a genre movie and you want to elevate the genre movie, the best way to do that is through character and developing relationships with the actors. So I think it's always important, and you'll see in the movies, is to take the time to develop the relationship as a filmmaker to actor and also develop that sort of friendship and trust so that when you get in the trenches, you know, you, the, the, the screenplays spend the time with the characters so that when you get to the end of the action, you really care about the people and, and all the stuff that's going on around them. So, you know, my process is to really build the foundation and the rehearsal process. We basically don't read lines over and over again. We just kind of discuss each scene and what we want to feel and what we're going to do. And then once we lay that foundation together... Uh, it's my job to sort of, I call it police it in a way, and keep them on going, keep them on track, or find ways to push it further. And so um, it's important to me that you develop those relationships before you get out there in the trenches, because once you're out there, it's much more difficult and more pressure.
2: Got it. Alex, you, the, when you're, you have a, a part like this where there is kind of that, there's almost like a, like a telekinetic thing going on, there's, you know, there's this weird kind of spiritual, I don't know, you know, what is it, I mean, how do you kind of get into that, that mode? You know, like knowing you can, your character can do these things, but, you know, in real lives, like obviously, you know, what, what do you have to...
1: First of all, you've got to learn how to say it in an American accent. Okay, starter. <laughs> because uh, saying telekinesis is pretty much hard enough saying it in an English accent, let alone an American. Uh, but uh, I don't know, you, um, you fantasize as a kid and, and you're out in the backyard and you pretend you're batman or spider-man and um you just kind of bring that inner child back and as dj said everyone you know fantasizes about you know being a superhero and you know i got to live it so
2: and you also if i heard correctly got to do some stunts on this can you describe what that process was like uh
1: yeah i i did do i did do uh some of my stunts on the on the movie and um yeah, a lot of it was uh, to do with wire work and um beforehand we had 2 months training and it was wire work and flexibility training and you know um I find it hard enough to bend down and touch my toes let alone do backflips off of 80 foot cliffs so uh so yeah, it was um it was an interesting experience and
2: were there any particular hairy moments in the stunt world for you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh yeah, I mean um I, I it's in the well I don't think it was in that trailer, but there's uh, in one of the previous trailers. Um, I do a backflip off a, off a waterfall, and uh, and DJ has this one shot over, and it's a beautiful shot. And he said to me, uh, "Hey, dude, I need I need you to get closer to the to the waterfall." I said, "What do you mean closer?" He says, "I need need you to not do so much of a backflip off and just more kind of jump and then dive." Um, <laughs> uh, and, and so I said, yeah, dude, but the problem is my head's going to be, like, that far away from the, from, the, from the rock. And he goes, yeah, 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 that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. <laughs> so uh, so, so <laughs> I, I, I'm standing there, and by the way, excuse my language, I'm pissing myself as it is looking down uh, at 80 feet. Um, and uh, and, and so, I, so I jump, and all of a sudden I do the whole thing, and it's all a blur, and I come back up, and all I see is everyone like oh shit oh shit and apparently uh, apparently apparently i was on screen this far away from the from the from the actual rock and uh, and
0: it, it was camera angle that made it look a lot worse but he was pretty close so. yeah <laughs>
1: the truth is i was actually this far away from from the rock but yeah
2: and then when you have a guy like michael bay involved in a film like this I'm just curious, like, does he show up on set? He's like, you know, this needs more explosions here. We need a lingerie model in this scene.
0: (laughs) I mean, how how does that work? Well, uh, I think, fortunately for me, Michael was off making Transformers 3, so he just would send me little emails about seeing dailies and make some nice comments and stuff. But, uh, no, there's a, when a Michael Bay name is on a a film, there's a certain audience expectation, and I think, um, you know, this particular movie spends a lot, a lot more time with character and setup, and ultimately builds towards a nice finale. So um, I think it was I mean, it was fine. Michael was really helpful with the visual effects and stuff towards the end, but no, he he really was really good and trusting. I think when you have Spielberg, who's running the company, and Michael it's nice to have directors running the company because they understand everything that you're going through as opposed to like some of the producerial people who don't really get it. So having two producers, having two directors as producers was very, again, very liberating.
2: And you've worked with Spielberg before uh, as a a producer capacity. What's your relationship like with him? I guess, what is he like in the development process and how has he been, you know, in your career?
0: Well, I think the, the most amazing thing about Steven that you've you you can't forget is like every time he talks about a script idea or a movie or or breaking down the script or a movie that he just saw is like this infectious child who just loves movies and he has this amazing ability to put himself in the seat and become an audience member and not judge the film from some cinematic genius standpoint, but that ability to sit in, the stand, sit in the crowd and watch the movie and to feel what might not be working or what is working, and then he's able to communicate that with you. And, and in the editing room, you know, his editing room was across from mine on Warhorse. so I would just have him come in and say, God, I have two versions of this scene. Can you just sit down and watch these two versions? And just in one viewing... He memorized every shot, every cut, and can give you notes without. Most people have to play it back again and again. He just has this photographic, cinematic memory, and he would give these great notes and great, great comments. And so it's great now to have three films with him. We have kind of this unspoken bond. If I ever need anything, I just call him, and it's nice for him. He kind of just gives you that freedom. He's not hovering over your shoulder, but he's always there if I need him.
2: Must be nice. It's kind of nice. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of nice. Let's take some questions. Who has a question? Please wait for the microphone. There's one over here.
1: Right here in the back. How you doing? Um,
0: Fine, how are DJ, you? DJ,
1: big fan of your work. Thank you. Question for you. Um, this sounded like a pretty easy process, but my question is, what was the toughest part about making this film?
0: I think the toughest part for me, it's sort of twofold. One was, um, I've never had so many visual effect shots. There's 799 visual effect shots. Um, we're a very modest budget movie that for a movie that has that many shots. So getting the effect shots done in time and only having from the st- time you start shooting to the time you're finishing is eight months. But that's more of a from a like a you know lifestyle difficulty. I think the most difficult part as a filmmaker was making sure that John Smith's life, not number four's life. Was dramatized in an incredibly real way because when you get to science fiction action and some of the stuff you just started to get your tip of seeing, you want to make sure that you've done justice to the characters so that the character's reality is that reality so the audience can smoothly you know, make the transition into making that, you know, believing John's world and everything that he's in. So I think it was probably combining the realistic drama with the crazy, crazy action in science fiction.
1: What was the hardest part for you, Alex? Uh, the hardest part was. Um... <laughs> probably the physical aspect, but I think um, it was probably uh, trying to get a character that um, felt mysterious um, and like this outsider, but at the same time for, for the audience to relate to him and, and feel for him. And I think that's where the, the music comes in and we start <laughs> singing. Uh, uh, I think that's where the vulnerability came in and that's where, where you can relate to him. One here in the front row.
0: That makes a good segue for my question, which is, when you don't have a backstory and you don't have like the novels to read, or uh, certainly you don't have a profile about this alien culture, how do you, how do you two work out that character, that balance between the vulnerability and the human side and the alien side? Do you invent things? Do you uh, read other science fiction books or look at other stuff? Well, we we you know you built in mean, building the foundation. You know, first thing I did because I always felt his character was disenfranchised, I made him watch Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, I made him watch Starman and, and recommended a few other movies because Starman to me was sort of the great, it is to me, the great sort of alien love story. Um, and so you do sort of your, your cinematic homework. And basically at the end of the day though, we just really treated it as real as we could. And basically here's a guy, and obviously alien being a metaphor for being an outsider, who's an outsider who really is a guy who um, ultimately thinks thinks what he wants and thinks who he's going to become. It, it, he finds out that it's not really who he is; that he has this greater calling. And, and sort of our theme in the my, our theme, I think that we kind of built together was: once you accept who you are, that's when you become the most powerful person. Whatever you are in school, or however you however you've been, whatever you are, accept who you are. Don't be judged. And once you accept that, you become more powerful. So that was sort of the,
1: the kind of theme that we kind of hooked onto to take us through all that. I think what I loved about not knowing about the backstory of John is that uh, he was always discovering, and. Um... You know, uh, when you discover things uh, as an actor and uh, as the character, I think the audience discovers them with you. And, you know, as DJ said, he, he you know, John, or number four, is this reluctant hero. Um, and uh, when he fights, it it really means that he is going to fight. And uh, when he discovers things, he really is discovering them for the first time. And I thought that was nice, you know, because this guy does know that he's different, but he never had any uh, signs of it. He just thought he was this abnormal kid. Um, so, yeah, I thought it was kind of beautiful not to, know, not to know his past.
2: Middle row, all the way over on your right. Uh, I actually have two questions. Um, one about the screenwriting process and one about the next film. Um, so I know there's six novels that they're making, right? Are you directing the rest of them?
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, there, this is the first of six. The, um, the second book... Uh, we got to see the outline of the second book because obviously I didn't want to kill anybody off in the first one that uh, would make, a, make the author go crazy in the second one. Um, but yeah, it's the first of six. Um, we, you know, they're still writing the second one. And, and if the movie, if, if, if audiences go and see the movie and have as much fun watching it as we had making it, then we definitely all like to get together and, and kind of hook it up and do it again. And as far as the screenwriting process was, uh, 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 Alfred and Miles, who I'd worked with on Smallville, had done the first draft, uh... And then ultimately, a really good friend of mine came in for two weeks who didn't take any credit but I think is a genius. I don't know if you guys know him. His name is Scott Frank, who's done some of the best screenwriting in, since I've been in this business. He's just a genius. And he came in and really helped me for two weeks, and we hunkered down and sat in Pasadena every day and really kind of honed the script. And then Marty Noxon came in. She was fantastic and really helped with a lot of the, the teenage stuff and, the, and the, the dialogue. So it was sort of a three-writer process. Everyone really contributed, um, and that's how, this, that's how we got a screenplay.
1: Over here, uh, to your left.
2: Alex Pettifer, will you be my valentine? (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Only if you come here and give me a hug.
2: Audience friendly. All right, uh, yes. Right
0: here in the middle.
1: Hi, DJ. How hard was it to find the perfect locations to film?
0: It was hard because um, initially, uh, once you read the screenplay, you have these ideas of what you think uh, the movie should be. So uh, once, we, once we kind of located the screenplay, I, u- I work in a color palette. And so basically, all I do is lay out colors in my office of of the mood and the colors I think the movie should be in. And so in the opening of the movie, when you'll see he's in Florida and he thinks he's in paradise and life is very good, so it's very blue and the sun is very warm and everything is very inviting. As the movie progresses and he has to get uprooted from that, it starts to progress and slowly but surely he gets in the middle of the country and it's rainy and it's dreary and it's, it's earth Tony Brown. And so I lay out all the colors and then basically go on a location scout searching for those things and looking for inspiration. Uh, His first house that he he settles in, uh, there's a painter named Andrew Wyeth, who obviously is very famous. And so I was trying to get some of the starkness of his houses and the the blown out whites and the emptiness of the house. And then when he starts to fall in love with Sarah, we start to warm up the town and look in Norman Rockwelling neighborhoods. And just so there's there's that whole directorial process. But it's hard, particularly when you're going in the middle of the country and you're scouting in February in Pittsburgh and you get snowed in for a like four days and you can't go out and look. But it's, it's very difficult, but eventually you kind of settle in and you basically find or create what you need. Well, also, high schools don't want you to blow out any holes in their walls, so you have to build all those hallways. <laughs> Way in the back here. Uh, this is a question for DJ.
2: What part of the story of I Am Number Four drew you most of the project, aside from the adolescent want to have telekinetic powers?
0: Uh, I think it was, uh, it was literally the desire of, of accepting who you are. I have this belief that we always believe we're going to be something, and very rarely do we ever turn out to be the person we think we're going to be. And usually we surprise ourselves. And I think for John, it was a dis- the self discovery of that journey. And once he accepts who he is and the sacrifice he has to make, uh, ultimately, as the movie progresses, he makes a really huge sacrifice that's very selfless. And I think. Younger people, and this is not a criticism, we all, even me, we tended to be very narcissistic at a certain age and you don't understand the world outside of yourself. He starts that way as a boy and ultimately by the end of the movie he becomes a man and becomes a warrior and he realizes it's it's selflessness and that to me was the most important thing to kind of convey. In this really fun movie, I think there's a really nice, underlying, strong theme that's sort of very liberating for, for people. To your right in the center.
2: Uh, this is a question for Alex. Um, getting to your part of John, did you have to like uh, like an alien who is t- can't tell a secret? Did you watch like Smallville or any of the Supermans?
1: Uh, no, I, I I didn't. I I obviously watched Star Starman Starman Starman. Uh, I watched Starman, and um, I think Jeff Bridges said something that was really weird and interesting. He said uh, when he was researching the character, he he said uh, I I. I watched a baby's face and a bird, so I I, I kind of said, "What do I need to do <laughs> to uh, to um, to to get this character?" And I thought I would probably look a little weird if I was leaning over someone's pram. So uh, so I um, I went away and I just you know as a as an actor and as playing John, there's um, a lot of resemblance. Uh, you know, we always get up and we move and we. We, we have to pretend to be different people. And uh, when I read the script, that's what, that's what this guy's life was. He, uh, he gets up, he moves to a different town, he changes his name, he tries to fit in uh, for, for however many months or for a minimum year and, uh, and move on. And, and I just thought, you know, that's really close to home is, uh, in, in my job. So, yeah. Front row? Hi, Alex. My question is: um, you have, so you're in this movie based on a book. There's another movie you're in that's coming out that's based on a book. And there's a lot of talk about movies that you might do that are based on books. And so, like, for the rest of your life, when you're like a decrepit 98-year-old man, like, dreaming about when you were in GQ and stuff like that, you're gonna, like, people are gonna think of you now when they read the book. And I'm wondering if that's intimidating at all, or if that's on your mind, or you can't let yourself think about it, because it's, like, too crazy. Uh, <laughs> By the way, ninety eight is a good life. I'm really ninety eight is a good life. But uh, you know, um, the thing with with this movie, you know, without trying to answer it in a in an arrogant way, um, you know, uh, when people read the book, the movie will be uh, well, the movie has already been made. So um, you know, when everyone was buying the book, they were buying the book knowing who the character was. Whereas I think when people bought the book of Twilight, and then they heard that a movie was being made. They, they were, they. Everyone had a fantasy of who they thought Edward would be. So I kind of got let off on that note. Um, uh, and you know, to to be a part of um, a movie that has been a book, I, I, you know, I did obviously. I think you were talking about Beastly. Um, you know, Beastly is a is a classic tale that's been around for centuries. And um, I think it's the moral message that I think I I really got attracted to more than it being a book, and then turned into a movie. And we have time for two more questions. This gentleman and then the lady behind him. Hang in there.
0: Hi,
2: my name is uh, Brian, and I was wondering, uh, you know, you learn so much when working on set and with a film. I was wondering what each of you learned and that was most important to you after the completion of the film that you took away that you kind of treasure now.
0: Well, uh, for me personally, like I said, it was one of, those, one of the films for me where I've never had so many visual effects before. And uh, that was the challenge. I really wanted to learn about that because I've always been sort of you know, critical about, oh, these visual effects and these guys and, and things like that. So now I found myself being one of them. Um, so what I really learned was that uh, instinct, instinctively I really felt I was always trying to push for practical things to happen within the frame. So for example, when Alex is being chased by one of these aliens and monsters and it's crashing through the wall. I was really diligent about like I still want to crash through the wall so I'd have this big iron thing that weighed about 800 pounds crash through the wall so he has something to react to. And so I think what I really learned and and there's a few times where I didn't do that Uh, where I got talked out of it, what I really learned is like, no, you have to go with your instinct and really have practical things happen within the frame so that when you put in the CG characters, there's a real sort of visceral element that you can't really describe. There's a texture, there's real dust, there's smoke. Um, And so I think what I really learned is like to really be diligent about that and make sure that today's audiences are so sophisticated. Don't just go all CG. Really have real practical things in the frame that really help the actors and help you in the editing room later on.
1: Uh, uh, I learned teamwork. Um, You know, uh, I'm 20 years of age, and, and to have you know three people, three people, 300 people on a set is is uh, is is a big thing, and you know um, it's about me and DJ, you know, bringing people together and making you know a project uh, that we love um, happen and and do it right. I think.
0: Hi, Alex. Hi, DJ. Welcome to New York. Thank the you. The question for both of you: What's your all-time favorite movie and why? Ooh, that's a really tough question. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you two. Um, I, think, uh, I, think, <laughs> I think Taxi Driver and Goodfellows are probably my two favorite movies. <laughs> uh, and dramatically, just from, I think Scorsese was a genius when he made those films and still is a genius, but they move me so much in a dramatic way. And then there's a coming of age story that I just can never get out of my system. Uh, Lassie Hallstrom made a movie called My Life as a Dog. Uh, which to me is the greatest coming-of-age movie for me personally that I've ever seen. So those are probably the three that
1: really get me. Uh. (laughs) Clockwork Orange and uh, Bambi. Sorry? And Bambi. How the f- How did you know I was going to say that? I swear on my life I was actually going to say that. Were you really? I swear on my life I was actually going to say that. I was going to say, and Bambi. Did I, I tell just, you that before? No, i was just kidding. I swear on my life. And, you, and everyone's going to look at me thinking I'm a like, loser who kisses ass to a director, but I, I actually was going to say Bambi. Yeah. You know when the dear, like, when he, like, his, her mom dies? Oh, I, like, it's heartbreaking. I'm like Heartbreak. crying, my eyes out. <laughs> And I'm 20 years of age. Damn. I promised you I was going to say Bambi, even that's though people a, didn't believe no, that. Probably incredible. won't believe that. That's very weird. All right, talk about Alien. There's some like, weird your du- alien.
2: Your director knows you very well. He knows me too well. All right. Uh, that's basically everything all the time we got. Thank you very much for coming out. Thank you, too, very thank much you for great. coming thank you. out. The film yeah, opens February 18th. I'm Stu from Movie Line. Check it out. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.